0: Thanks for joining me in what's going to be our very last message in the book of Philippians. I've never preached through an entire book before, so this is kind of like a milestone for me. So thank you for allowing uh, me that privilege here at the church. I've had an absolute blast and kind of following Scott's lead on that. And he's got me beat by a few books already, but I got through my first one. So I'm super excited about that. Today, we're going to discuss something a lot of people find to be taboo. We're talking about money. We're talking about cash, giving, finances, things that we probably are a little bit uncomfortable with. We're talking about what everyone in this room works day in and day out to earn, to acquire more of, to either store up for future use or to use right now to advance yourself in this life on this earth. You can do that in good ways. You can do that in bad ways. You can spend a lot. You can spend a little. You can be super wise or you can just be completely flippant. Either way, we're encountering money. We are all in this relationship with it and we cannot escape it. At every corner of life, we'll find a tie to it. And if we're wanting to live a normal life, right? If we're wanting to live somewhat comfortably in America, if we want to live a life with our own food, with our own drink and shelter, a life that depicts a right to the pursuit of happiness, then money is something that we absolutely need based on that logic. It's something that we absolutely depend on in order to thrive in the United States. It's funny to me, though, that something so common... As money, something so used, as money, something so necessary and studied and something so desired is something that we keep really, really hidden. We keep it really, really secret. And here's what I mean. There are lots of people who get uncomfortable with this conversation. It's customary, think about it in your jobs, it's customary to never discuss your wages with another coworker or with people outside. I don't want people knowing what I make and you don't want people knowing what you make. It's customary. In the workplace, it's often a fireable offense to talk about your wages with your coworkers. In an even more difficult way, talking to your supervisor about that thing can be extremely uncomfortable. I mean, there's got to be an art to, uh, you know, asking for more money. Not all of us are good at that. In the hiring process, some places are very different. Some places are upfront and they put their pay range right on the job description and others won't discuss it until you're halfway through the interviewing process. What about when you're making big purchases? You buy a new car, a new toy, a new something. You don't want people knowing how much you spent on that. We don't want that judgment. Or let's talk about romantic relationships and marriages. Finances can be such a tough thing to get through. It can be an area of conflict because if one person comes into that relationship with a greater amount of debt, you've got to work through that together. On one end, some of you are problem solving together and you're working through the debt together. You're working hard. You're you're creating new solutions. You're saving. You're spending time and energy and eventually you'll get to a point of financial security. And on the other end, some of you are just really dysfunctional and you just spend. And we've all been there and that's okay. But With money, we keep those poor spending habits and our poor thoughts about how we're going to use our money. We keep that on the low. We keep that quiet. People don't need to know how much credit card debt I have. People don't need to know what amount is in my bank account or how much I give to the church. Oftentimes, our finances are a source of embarrassment for us, whether we don't want people to know how much we give or we don't want to let people know how much we don't give. And for others of us, it's a source of pride. And Scripture says... That love for this money is a root, a root of all kinds of evil. So no one's sitting here in this room looking at me, Juan, 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 what you're preaching on today, that's me. I'm really bad at it. No one in here is doing that. We don't go around life touting I'm bad with money. Everybody here wants to pretend or at least think I've got a handle on my finances. I'll be honest, sometimes I do not. So here's what we can't do if we call ourselves believers. We can't be afraid of the conversations about things that the gospel is built to impact. If we've called ourselves disciples, if we've called ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, if we, if we say we're going to submit our whole entire self to Jesus, then what we can't do is give him anything less. And folks, that includes your wallet and your purse. We've talked about this before, church. We've gotten really comfortable in America as Christians. We've become accustomed to our own ways of doing things and thinking of things. We get caught up in our church thinking that we're eating spiritual steak, but if we took a snapshot of every aspect of our life, I'd be willing to bet that we're starving in places that we're not aware. And I firmly believe that many of us are spiritually starving when it comes to giving, finances, money. But no one's willing to say that. And it might be understandable. Who knows? It might be because in the past you've witnessed some wrongful dealings in the church with their money. Maybe, maybe pastors in the past have spent unwisely or have been a little bit money hungry and after your pocket. Maybe we're just blind to the pride that's going on inside of us. In either case, it doesn't change that we should have open hearts to what the Bible says about our finances. I mean, think about these facts really quick. Of the 29 parables that Jesus talks about, 16 of them somehow involve money. 16 of 29 parables that Jesus himself teaches on, he uses money as an illustration. There are about 500 verses in the New Testament about prayer. There are less than 500 verses on faith. Do you know how many are on money and possessions? Over 2,000. There's... An importance placed on this topic that we can't pretend anymore that doesn't exist. We can't continue to run away from what God's intention is for our finances. We cannot run from that. So today I want to give you four principles to focus on. But before we do that, I would love to ask God's blessing on this morning and for our hearts to be open. Can we pray? Let's do that. Father God, thank you so much for a morning like today. I thank you so much for the opportunity to meet together, whether masks or not masks. And so we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to hear from your word, to be molded by what you have to say for us. Lord, help us to submit to whatever your word has to say, whether it's this Sunday or next Sunday. God, I pray that you would. Help us to humble our hearts and allow you to shape us. And and today, Lord, that means our finances. Help us to align every part of our pocketbook with the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to make sure that we know what's leading up to this. So instead of starting in verse 15, which is where we are, I'm going to go back to verse 10 and just read from that so you can get a glimpse into uh, what we talked about last time and what Paul might be meaning. Verse 10. Now bear with me. It's a lot. Okay. I have received full payment in more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. First principle I want to give you is this. Giving is embraced and celebrated by God's people. Giving is embraced and celebrated by God's people. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Right off the bat, River Church, we need to acknowledge that as Christians, we must embrace giving. Christians can be characterized by how generous they are. I believe that generosity is talked about so much because it can be such a source of division. It can be division between people on earth and division between you and God. Jesus knew that this would be such an issue for us, so he addressed it over and over and over again. And it's it's time that we really take hold of what God is intending. And for me, growing up in the church, we just knew that we had to give, you know, the 10%, right? Like that was in Sunday school class. We had to give, we had our little buddy barrels. We were collecting coins to give to the Sunday school teacher. Uh, 10%, it was like a no-brainer. And if you wanted to give extra just because or to give to the youth fundraiser, you could do that and designate your gift. Yeah, you can totally do extra, but the 10% is a thing. You gotta, you gotta do that. But what's so interesting to me is that this concept of tithing, which is just a portion of right giving, is such a main focus. We focus on the 10% thing. We focus on what we're supposed to give, our first fruits. Uh, When I come on Sunday, I I have my check to be, you know, that's my tithe. It's such a main focus when we think about giving, but it's not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament one. And when I looked into this uh, in greater detail a few years ago, I was super surprised that this concept of tithing is nowhere to be found in the New Testament. I I was laughing. I was thinking to myself, why in the world is everyone telling me I got to give up 10% of my money that I work for, that I make, if it's nowhere to be found in the New Testament? Why am I doing this? Lord, what in the world is going on here? But I think because our nature is to accomplish a task list, to make sure that we're satisfying requirements, over generations, we've uh, turned tithing into this comfortable tradition that helps us feel secure in our faith. So then moving forward, when we give, we feel good about when we get to that 10% or maybe more. I gave above 10% this month. You're doing your budget and you're trying to figure out... Okay, is my 10% from my gross income or my net? When do I give him the 10%? What's that calculation look like? That's how we process some of this. And once once we figure out that number, we're like, okay, I have the number. When am I going to give? How frequently am I going to give? And how am I going to pay it? Once you figure it out, you just let it be. I'm good. Think nothing of it. But it's important to understand where tithing comes from. So here's what that kind of looked like in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, tithing was taught as an obligation for God's people. The tithe of God's people didn't have just one tithe of a tenth. It wasn't just a 10%. In fact, there were two, so it was taken twice a year. And on every third year, there was a third one. And then on top of that, there was a tax for the temple. So by the time we get through those different types of tithes and taxations, we're looking at closer to 25 percent. This number might seem outlandish, but it's because we get caught up in a comfortable number and set on a given, we set ourselves on a given percentage that we fail to realize that the only percentage that matters is a 100 percent. And it's this, that 100 percent is all of your money belongs to God. You're not giving God 10 percent of you, you're giving him 10 percent back of what he's given because everything is his. All the riches of the earth are his. Everything in creation is his. And he's allowed us to have that here on earth. So when we get fixated on these percentages, we forget in our minds that none of it actually belongs to us. Zero percent is ours. If we approach our finances a little more like that, we can start to flip it on its head. And, and let's say we do give that 10, 25%. Our thinking isn't we give 25%, but God let me have 75%. That's just an interesting way to think about it. But I'm going to be honest with you, I'm pretty happy that I don't have to give 25%. I don't necessarily know if I have it in my heart to want to give 25% of my income. If I'm being honest, it would be really hard to let go of 25% of my income. A lot of the things I enjoy and love to do, I would no longer have. When I was reading, I thought something else was really cool too. That their tithes went to supporting other groups of the tribes, for example. The Levites had no inheritance. So when the others were taxed, a portion of that taxation would go to the Levites, and that's what they lived off of. If I can pause right there, that we are not doing that. I am not working so you can live. You're going to work, and you're going to live on you. And I'm going to work, and I'm going to live because of me. You're like, we're not, I'm not paying for other people. Like, that's our mindset, right? We don't give. We don't sustain others. We sustain our own. But church giving is much more than tithes. Giving is much more than giving percentages. Giving is about the compassion that wells up in your heart, responding to what God has done in your own life, sacrificing for others, activating your faith, realizing that this is not yours for the taking. And lastly, it also tells you a little bit about your spiritual maturity. So I'll ask you, have you embraced giving in your own life? And I don't need answers because that's between you and the Lord. But have you embraced giving? And when I say embraced, it's not the, I give 10% every year, we're good. Have you embraced the compassion that wells up in your heart to give for others? Do your finances reflect your faith? Now, if you're wanting to embrace giving a little more seriously, here's what the New Testament has to say about it. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, Paul says this. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Sounds like really similar language that he used all throughout Philippians, doesn't it? Romans 12 says you should give liberally. Matthew 6 says you should give in secret. Acts 20, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew 6 again, that when you give, you store up treasures not on earth, but in heaven. Mark 12, that your motivation for it matters more than your amount. Luke 6, give and it'll be given to you. And lastly, in James 1, what we must not forget is that every good and perfect gift is not from us, From above. Church, we have to get this first lesson down. You must embrace giving. There is a side of life that you are missing. Selfishly, you are missing the blessings and the riches spiritually that come from generosity. Never mind that it's how Christians should be characterized. God's people not only embraced giving, but they also celebrated. So look at Paul, verse 14 again. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul is bragging right now. Paul starts off this thought acknowledging that the Philippians have witnessed how broke Paul was from the very first time he came up here on this stage to preach the gospel to them. They saw him, how poor he was, how he had nothing from the very beginning, yet he preached that gospel to them regardless. And he's bragging because they're one of the only churches to have supported him, not only in his ministry to them, but when he went to other churches. It's important to note that Not all the churches Paul started were good givers. They weren't. But the Philippians, the Philippians were faithful. They were his day one family right there. They were the ones that wherever he went, they were sending care packages. Wouldn't it be great, Root River Church, if that's how our church was known? And not just amongst one another. Not that me and James are givers to each other. And then me and Scott are givers to each other. And so on. So you guys are giving to one another. That's all really great things. But what if the community, the unbelievers... Looked at Root River Church, and even though they don't go here, say, they're really generous. They're really generous. What would it look like if that could be Root River Church? I want us to celebrate when we meet each other's needs, when we meet the needs of the hurting and the broken, both financially, physically, but also spiritually, in any and every possible way that's available. Don't we want to be generous? We should yearn for impact in and outside of the church body. We cannot just be concerned about one another, but all people. That's what Paul did. There's a phrase here that I want to call your attention to, and I get it out of the NASB, um, which is a direct translation from the Greek. It just says, the matter of giving and receiving. The matter of giving and receiving. Paul uses language having to do with, hear this, business transactions. When he says the matter of giving and receiving, it's like him using words like credits and debits, profits and losses. See, in that time, it was customary to talk about gifts between friends in that kind of way. Oftentimes, you'd be indebted to your friends. You did something for me. Now I am indebted to you. But quickly, because we're friends, I'm going to repay you, and sometimes maybe even more. That's how our friendships were discussed. I might come at you with equal or greater kindness moving forward. As far as Paul was concerned, the burden had now fallen on him to repay the Philippians. Paul was now in a place of debt. That's what he's saying. But if we look at his situation, he's super broke. Without their money, he's got nothing. So can he really, is he really in a place of repayment? He's got no options. But he's celebrating their giving because he knows that when they gave to him, he had, they had no thoughts in their mind about expecting repayment back. That's, that's what I think about. That's what I think is beautiful about when I think of the Philippians. They weren't giving because they were expecting from Paul. They were giving because they just wanted to bless Paul and further the gospel. We must embrace giving and we must celebrate generosity. That's how we build culture in our churches and in our communities. We have to respond to the gospel by putting it to action. We must embrace giving and celebrate the generosity that accompanies it. Principle number two, giving is pleasing to God. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul isn't after gifts. I mean, let's be honest. He's already established that he's cool in whatever situation he finds himself in. He can abound in riches or he can be abased. He can be poor. He can have nothing. That is not his concern. In fact, we've seen multiple occasions in other letters that he's written, and he boasts to them saying that he doesn't cost them any money to preach the gospel to them. He boasts about it. I cost you nothing. I cost you nothing. Because he doesn't want to be a burden on people. And it's a result of churches like the Philippians having been generous. He's able to say that. Paul's life work right here is on display, and he wants nothing more than to see his people mature. And part of that maturity absolutely is generosity. It just happens to be that he's their current means of generosity, which is probably a little uncomfortable for Paul. But he says this, I seek the fruit. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And when he says the word fruit, I immediately call back in the first chapter chapter 1, verses verse 9 through 11. My mind instantly goes there because this is what he says when he starts off the letter. He says, and this is my prayer, Philippians, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with, and here it is, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This fruit that Paul says results in generosity is one thing, that fruit is righteousness. Righteousness. That fruit is 100% righteousness. So church, I want to tell you, righteous people are giving people. Righteous people are generous people. Righteous people are self-sacrificial, right? We know everything that Paul has said in all of his letters. But specifically in Philippians, we went through how selfless he wanted the Philippians to be. Paul could care less about the amount of money. What Paul knows is that their generosity is going to be known for generations to come. Years and years later, generations and generations later, it's being talked about today. And what Paul says is that God counts that as righteousness. Now, here's what's cool about the dynamic between Paul and the Philippians. The manner in which the Philippians give to Paul is super counterintuitive. Nowadays, we can get uh, away with simply writing a check and filling a need. You need help Got you. I got a 20 spot for you. I'm on the street. A homeless guy needs something to eat. Hey, you got a couple bucks. So I can get a burger. Yep. I got a couple bucks. Here you go. Feeling the need nowadays is super easy. But then it was counterintuitive because check this out. Epaphroditus, who was sent by the Philippian church with this care package, money and resources, had to travel 800 miles. Now, I walked 36 a couple weeks ago. OK, that was horrible. I'm not walking 800 miles for nobody. It's just not happening. You're going to give me a whole year to walk that much. Scott, I'm sorry if you're in prison in Philippi. I'm not walking 800 miles, bro. I'm not doing it. I just can't do it. So it's counterintuitive. The sacrifice for them to give to Paul, not only because they were poor, but this dude had to walk 800 miles? Nope. It's a huge sacrifice. And like I said, they did that knowing that there wasn't going to be a return. So I want to pause really quick and talk about that. Sometimes when God is impressing on your heart to be generous, to do something, to say something, to give something, it will not make any sense. It may not be the best deal. You may not see a profit from it. It may cost you a lot. It may be painful. But just like the Philippians, when you give with your heart, out of compassion and genuine care, it's really you being generous and pure of heart. Paul says it's a fragrant offering to God. It's a sacrifice that is actually acceptable and pleasing to him. When I read words like acceptable and pleasing, that means I must sometimes offer up things to God that are unacceptable and not so pleasing to God. But he's saying right here, if you give sacrificially, that is an aroma that I absolutely Love. This is Paul talking about the giving of the Old Testament. He's talking about burnt offerings of incense and and animal sacrifice. One One of my favorite examples of burnt offerings and sacrifices is found in the story of Noah. Now, if you don't know his story, I'll just quickly summarize. There had been increasing corruption and wickedness all over the earth. And for the first time, the Bible says that God regretted creating man or filling the earth with man. And he decided to kill them all. He decided to kill everybody but one man in his family. It says that he was, he said that Noah is a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, that he walked and talked with God. So God spared him while sending a massive flood to kill everybody on the earth. And of course, we know that he took his family with him on the boat and God had him build it in order to protect himself and his family. Along with himself and his family, he took a number of animals. Toward the end of the story, when Noah finally gets to walk on dry land after weeks and weeks of massive of a massive flood and enduring a horrible storm and seeing all sorts of massacre and death around him, you know what Noah does? The Bible says that Noah gets off the boat, walks on the earth, and makes an altar and sacrifices a burnt offering from one of every animal God had him bring on the boat. Noah, after years and years of toiling and listening to God and getting chastised by the public, he gets on this boat. God has been is, is continuing to prove himself faithful. Weeks and weeks go by. He's finally on dry land again. And the very first thing he does is builds an altar. And he kills all these animals, and put them on there as a burnt sacrifice. And you know what's weird? You don't often hear God having like body parts or what he looks like. The Bible says that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and vowed to never curse the ground again on the account of man. I didn't know God had a nose, first of all, uh, but but apparently God has a nose, okay? And he smelled Noah's offering, and it was extremely pleasing to his nose. That's where I want to be. I want to be Noah, where I get off in whatever storm I get off of the boat, and my first answer and my first reaction to anything is to create an altar for him spiritually and give him the best gifts and sacrifices. That's where I want to be. Church, you are underestimating You're giving power. You're not aware of how far your giving really could go. You may think it stops to keep this church up or it stops with the need you meet in a person, but you don't know how far that goes down the road. We're talking about this generations and generations later. That is already an effect and fruit of the Philippians' righteousness. So imagine if we had a bunch of churches like the Philippians, how much longer and how much stronger the church would be. God is so pleased with us when we show even an inkling of his son, Jesus Christ, to people. So number two is giving is pleasing to God. It absolutely is pleasing to God. Number three, principle number three is giving is rewarded in heaven. Giving is rewarded in heaven. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And here's what I find fascinating about this piece right here, because in a time where Paul has no solution in his own body and his own mind and his own resources to offer repayment, in a time where he might be embarrassed socially because he's indebted to his friends and cannot pay them back, he knows one thing, and it's this, that God is going to step in and redeem him through the Holy Spirit. 100%, what Paul is saying is, yeah, I'm not going to be able to repay you. But you know what? There's a God whose riches are greater than yours. There's a God whose riches is greater than your minds could ever understand. And you know what? He's going to repay you. And if I can correct myself, he doesn't say, oh, God, he says, my God, my God is going to repay you. I love that because Paul at every level in all of his letters always draws us back to intimacy with him. My God, when you give, your return won't always be on earth. What Scripture is not saying is that you give money so you can get money. What Scripture is not saying is if I give to you, God's going to pour piles of gold and silver and rubies and jewels next to me. That's that's not what that is. We don't give so I can get more money. You You may get more money at times. God may pour out financial gain on your behalf, but understand that your return is found in the kingdom of heaven. And if that's not something you've learned yet, then that's what this is all about. I'm going to repeat the verse. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was indebted to the Philippians and he knew he wasn't going to pay them back. But he wanted to teach the Philippians the way you're giving to me. Continue to give that way because when people can't give back to you, that's fine. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for God. Now, some of us are in deep struggles financially. Some of us have immense debt, and it's painful, and it it aches at you. You have a family to raise, and you're trying to escape these burdens that you found yourself underneath, and it's difficult. Your, Your income isn't high, so you can't really pay off as much as you would have hoped, and you feel like it's something towering over you. You may have been through some tough times. You may have encountered some hospital bills. All sorts of bills are racking up. And others of you might be feeling like, okay, I'm supposed to give, but I don't have anything. You don't have, what do you do if you don't have anything? I want to encourage you, one, that it's going to be okay. God will take care of you. It's all over scripture. Your needs will be met, period. What what the Bible is not saying is, oh, if you have no money, you don't get the riches that come with generosity. No, you can be generous and be broke. In my last sermon, I used this passage, and I'm going to use it again because I think it's a really good picture of Christ's love for us and what it looks like to give when you have nothing. Mark twelve forty one through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, she put in everything, all she had to live on. Whether you're struggling financially or you're in no trouble at all, you need to know that what matters most is what's in your heart when you give. And it doesn't matter how much you have to give. It matters why you, you give. And I'm encouraged by this. In Second Corinthians 8, 12, he says, For if the willingness is there, If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You can have nothing and be the most generous person on the planet. There's ways to give. There's ways to love. There's ways to show mercy. And it's not just financials. Your giving is rewarded in heaven. Last principle, principle number four. Giving grows the family. Giving grows the family. This is how Paul ends His letter to the Philippian church, verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul says, this last piece. He shares this last piece of information as a way to say, look, even as I write you goodbye in my letter, the very people that are benefiting from your gift to me that allows me to preach the gospel in this city, from your generosity, they want you to know who they are. They want you to acknowledge that there is fruit from your generosity. They want to be recognized, not for their own sake, but so that other believers can see what's going on here. Paul says, especially those in Caesar's household. Think about who those are. When Paul was in prison, he was chained to guards. He was exposed to the slaves and the dependents of Nero, who had probably no intention of talking to Paul at all. But over time, Paul's generosity of spirit and of his words and of his mercy, grace, and love, everything that encompasses Jesus Christ, he was so generous with how much Jesus he gave them. They had been converted, even though he was a prisoner, attached to them in chains in the palace. I feel like this is unthinkable. You do not hear of that now. Going to prison, going to prison and sharing the gospel there and everybody's getting saved, that's just not a a thing. If I can say it again, church, you do not know how far God can use your generosity. But I, I want you to know, as your faith begins to mature, as you become to choose to be more generous, as you decide in your heart you want to give more and more, you're going to see... God used that to bring people to his kingdom. And it may be by way of coming to River Church or another church. It may be you and that person in the living room. You have no idea how your generosity can absolutely impact your community. People will find themselves out of the gates of hell and into the gates of eternity with Jesus Christ. And that will be to your credit, Paul says, because of your generosity. Our goal is to show people Jesus in the best way and something that society has such a high value on like money can really be an issue for many people. We cannot let something like money get in the way of us being able to show people Jesus love. We cannot allow something like money to get in the way of our generosity because people see money a certain way. And if we're the church, we see it in a kingdom way. And so there's going to be a contrast, but the contrast should show benefits. It should be a blessing. People should see it differently and say, that's different. That Maybe that's weird. Like, what is going on there? And they'll ask questions. In the youth group uh this fall, I decided that our th- we're going to come up with a theme for this fall. And the theme for this fall is essentials. At the end of the day, Root River Church, I believe there is a plan out there for each of our lives. And as believers we're probably not where we need to be. And this is what I mean. There's a better version of you out there. I believe that. There is a stronger believer version of you out there. There is a better relationship version of you out there, and it's for you to take hold of. And so I was telling the students that this fall, I'm going to dedicate myself to giving them the essentials for a better life and essentials for having a better relationship with Jesus Christ because it's out there. We just need to take hold of it. So I want to say that to you as well. The The gospel message, River Church, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is built to encounter all things. Every single thing. It embraces every person. It embraces every being, every system, every social construct or custom, every friendship. And it takes all of those things and it reshapes it. It gives it purpose. Jesus gives you new purpose. He gives you new ways to do life, new ways to be generous. Every aspect of life that you can think of, Jesus Christ can impact it and reshape it. You have to push that forward, not just for your benefit, but for the people in our community, in our churches. And this morning, that includes your wallet and your purse. If that's something you can't come to terms with yet, that's okay. But I do want to end with this. It's in Romans 12. And I always like to find pictures of, or word pictures of, how I'm feeling on the inside, how I want to attack my faith, how I want to press forward and be selfless. And this is what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We worship God when we give, period. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, we know that there are things in our life, in our lives, that we are holding from you. And we would be silly to say that that's not true. But Lord, you know it's true. You've searched our hearts and you know that there are things that we're holding on to. And we want to repent of that, God. There are things in our lives that we are not allowing you to shape and mold, God. And, And for a lot of us, that's finances, God. Each of us has a decision to make on how generous we're going to be day in and day out. Each of us will decide how much of our money we will give to you and how much of our money we will keep in between us, God. And so I'm praying right now, Lord, for those of us who have been wrestling with finances or giving or tithing, whatever it may be, God, that you first and foremost breed generosity in this church, that they would see the results and the fruit of being generous to people, and that it would empower them and, and that they could see the Jesus in all of that, and they would get excited to give more, that they would they would try to out one another, that they would be known in the Franklin community as the church that are givers, that are generous, that are that are powerful with their finances, God. Lord help us to open our hearts to the message that you have for us. Help us to not allow things to get in the way of what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.